Welcome to the Badlands, that overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast, a series which aims to expose and examine the underlying ideas that shape our political landscape. I'm Toby Napolitano. And I'm Michael Hughes. In the last episode, we started focusing on the issue of economic inequality, and we gave some arguments for thinking that the current distribution of wealth is morally unacceptable, given that the U.S. has incredible wealth, and yet there are lots of people struggling to live decent lives. Right. So the first argument is just that we have an obligation to help people who are struggling when we can do so with little cost to ourselves. And so given that there's incredible wealth and still a great deal of poverty, this suggests that we're not living up to this obligation. And the second argument was that there's an obligation to ensure that our institutions at least protect our basic human rights. The widespread poverty that exists in the United States, despite an incredible amount of resources to address the problem, suggests that our basic right to subsistence is not being adequately protected by our institutions. But here's where the believer in the American dream butts in and says, now hang on just a minute. This is America, the land of opportunity. In America, if you work hard, then you'll be fine. That means that anyone who's not doing fine just isn't working hard. And frankly, if they're not working hard, they don't deserve to be doing fine. What's the injustice then? People shouldn't get what they don't deserve. And here's where we roll our eyes. We'll explain it in detail in a minute just why we roll our eyes so hard, but seriously, do people sincerely believe that? It's honestly really hard to imagine how. It, it seems like you'd have to believe that everyone who is struggling to make ends meet just doesn't work very hard. And it's hard to see how the hell anyone can believe that unless they've just lived in a very comfortable bubble completely sealed off from any real struggle or difficulty their whole lives. But then there's also the other side, which is really just astounding. They presumably have to think that everyone who has money has it because they worked hard and deserved it. And it's hard to know where to even start with that. <sighs> well, one thing that belief in the American dream depends on is the idea that, roughly speaking, everyone has an equal opportunity to make a decent life for themselves. After all, the thought is that no matter who you are, in America, if you work hard and play by the rules, you can provide for you and your family. And furthermore, if you think that the current inequality that we have isn't a problem because it just reflects differences in who works hard and who doesn't, then you must think that everyone has a roughly equal chance at economic success, provided they apply themselves. Right. If some people have a much better chance at succeeding than others, regardless of their work ethic and ability, then one can't be so quick to assume that differences in work ethic explain why people end up where they do. And if the system stacks the deck against some people so that it's really difficult or impossible for them to provide for themselves or their families, then it's just not true that everyone can make it if they work hard enough, and the American dream is nothing more than a myth. And not only would the American dream be a fantasy, but it strikes most people as being deeply unjust if one's opportunities to succeed in life depend so much on morally arbitrary factors like one's gender, race, geographic location, or how much wealth one's parents have. What's comforting about the American dream is that it gives one a sense of fairness, that you'll be rewarded on the basis of your ability and your work ethic. This is, in part, what's meant to be so great about America, and what makes it better than, for example, a caste system where certain groups of people, just because of their family lineage, are locked into poverty or locked into wealth, regardless of their merit. Okay, so there are two really important questions that we need to ask. First, 
is there anything resembling equality of opportunity in the United States? And second, even if there isn't equality of opportunity, is it at least the case that everyone can make a decent living if they work hard enough? Unsurprisingly, we've got bad news. The answer to both questions is no. The deck is not only stacked against some people, but it's stacked so heavily against them that they don't have any realistic chance at making it out of poverty. The statistics on relative mobility provide some evidence for this. In the United States, and indeed more so in the U.S. than in many other countries, wealth tends to perpetuate itself, as does poverty. If your family is wealthy, it is much easier for you to stay wealthy than it is for someone who is not wealthy to become wealthy. It is also much more unlikely that you will be poor as an adult compared to someone who comes from a poor family. Of course, there are two competing kinds of explanation for these facts. One kind of explanation would be something like, well, the reason poor kids are much more likely to be poor as adults is that, basically, something is wrong with poor people. Maybe they're lazy, they're unintelligent, or they're bad parents, for example. The other competing explanation says that the reason poor kids tend to remain poor, and wealthy kids tend to be wealthy as adults, is because they inhabit completely different worlds, and their respective access to opportunity is not at all comparable. Wealthy kids have far greater access to the kinds of opportunities that make them marketable in our economy and set them up for long-term economic success. Truthfully, in our view, a, a pretty brief reflection on the lives of poor kids should be enough to decide in favor of the second kind of explanation. But let's go a bit further into the causes of the differences in access to opportunity between the rich and the poor. Just how is it that wealthy kids have much greater access to opportunity than poor kids? My fellow Americans, I'd like to talk to you today about one of the most important issues that touches our lives and shapes our future. The education of America's children. We've always had a love affair with learning in this country. America's a melting pot and education has been a mainspring for our democracy and freedom. A means of providing gifts of knowledge and opportunity to all citizens, no matter how humble their background so they could climb higher, help build the American dream, and leave a better life for those who follow. Honestly, the reasons are too numerous to do them justice here, and we will mention more in future episodes. But for now, we'll focus on education. After all, education is meant to be the great equalizer. If you work hard in school, then you can be anything you want to be. Or at least, you should be able to earn a living, no matter who your parents are and how much they have. Employers obviously care a great deal about education. Being eligible for many positions will require that you have a certain degree, and being competitive for those positions will often require that you got the degree from a prestigious institution. As most people know, not all degrees are equal in the eyes of employers. Your educational achievements are a way to signal to employers that you have merit, that you have developed the ability and the skills to perform that job well. Employers, after all, need some way of discerning who the best candidates are for the relevant job. Now, some might say that since educational attainment correlates well with one's income bracket, the huge inequalities we see are just the result in differences between people's abilities to make the most of their education. And in that case, what's the problem with the inequalities? Well, first, it seems to us to be a pretty horrible position to hold. Since the idea would be something like, if you made a mistake as a kid, or didn't excel at the kinds of tasks that you were forced to do in school when you were a teenager, then, well... You don't deserve to live a decent life. But the second point, which will be our focus here, is that poor kids simply don't have the same educational opportunities as wealthy kids. Right. They don't have the same opportunities to develop those markers of merit that make one competitive for good jobs later in life. Inequality of opportunity starts early. 
and it compounds over time. Let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine that there are two little girls, Rosie and Daisy, and they're both about to start their first day of kindergarten. And suppose that all we know about them is that Daisy is from a family with high socioeconomic status. That is, her family is very well off, and her parents are well educated. And Rosie is from a family with a low socioeconomic status. Let's say the bottom 20% or lower. Her family is poor and probably not very well educated. And the question is, what, if anything, does this tell us about their chances of success in life? As it turns out, given the empirical research on socioeconomic status and education, it actually tells us quite a lot. On the whole, Daisy has a much, much greater chance of success at every stage in her life than Rosie does, who faces serious obstacles at every step. In fact, let's start with that first day of kindergarten. Odds are, Daisy's already significantly better at reading than Rosie is. In fact, it'll probably take Rosie until about halfway through the school year to be about where Daisy's likely to be on day one. Now, why is this? Well, Daisy's parents, because they are well-to-do and educated themselves, are likely to have raised Daisy in a very literacy-conducive environment. They have lots of books in their home, they spend time reading with Daisy, and their stress levels are very manageable. Rosie's parents or caregivers, by contrast, are not well-to-do and not well-educated. They have far fewer books in their home, read less with Rosie, perhaps because they just don't do much reading or don't have much time, and are more likely to lead very stressful lives and suffer from depression. Perhaps even more importantly, there are the basic dietary and environmental factors that impact cognitive development and significantly reduce Rosie's chances of educational success. For instance, Rosie's parents are less likely to be in a position to afford the nutrient-rich foods required for normal, healthy cognitive development of Rosie, and Rosie is more likely to live in a so-called food desert where such foods are not available for purchase at all. The research suggests that these differences in diet, healthcare, and early learning environments mean that Rosie is likely to be significantly behind Daisy by the time they enter kindergarten. And actually, we could have started even earlier. Children like Rosie who experience chronic poverty are much more likely to develop generalized learning deficits by the time they're two years old. Now, once they are in kindergarten, Rosie and Daisy will both make significant strides in their learning, so maybe schooling will help Rosie make up for Daisy's head start. The research suggests, however, that the gaps between Daisy and Rosie will actually likely increase over their first few years of schooling. There are a couple of reasons for this. The first doesn't have to do with the home environment, but the school and neighborhood environment. Daisy, because her family is well off, is likely to go to a higher quality school than Rosie. Daisy's school will have better teachers, more resources, generally better learning environments, better libraries, better healthcare and nutrition programs, and so on. In short, Daisy's school is likely to be better than Rosie's, and so Daisy is likely to be even further ahead of Rosie after a few years than she already was on the first day of kindergarten. Their schooling is helpful for both students, but it certainly doesn't allow Rosie to close the gap between her and Daisy. Now, interestingly, even if Rosie and Daisy were to go to the same school, Daisy is still likely to get further and further ahead of Rosie as the years go on, even if, throughout the school year, they make similar gains. Why is that? Well... Generally, students from families with high socioeconomic status outperform their peers, and students from families with low socioeconomic status underperform their peers when school is not in session. And the reason is that families that are well-to-do can use their resources to ensure that their child continues to be intellectually stimulated over the summer months. That's right. They can afford to send their kids to camps, involve them in clubs, take them on trips, 
pay for musical, athletic, or academic lessons, their neighborhoods and environments generally remain conducive to academic success. Low socioeconomic status families, by contrast, can't afford all these extracurricular learning opportunities, which help their kids keep up with their peers. Indeed, once they get old enough, they'll likely need to spend their extra time working low-paying, temporary jobs instead of studying or engaging in activities that will help them academically. And not only that, but kids from low socioeconomic status families are exposed to additional threats to their academic achievement that their high socioeconomic status peers never encounter. They are much more likely to be exposed to violence, either in their home or their neighborhood. They and their parents are much more likely to deal with significant stress, suffer from depression, and develop health and behavioral problems, which obviously will stunt their intellectual growth. What this all adds up to is that by the time they get to high school, Rosie is likely to be about five years behind Daisy in her literacy skills. And there are similarly wide gaps in mathematics proficiency as well. And in fact, these gaps have widened as the income and wealth gap has widened over the years. So unsurprisingly, the prospects for Daisy and Rosie continue to diverge throughout high school. Rosie, in fact, is somewhere around three to four times as likely to drop out than Daisy. In fact, more than 10% of kids from families like Rosie end up dropping out of high school. And of the rest who do graduate, only 20% of kids like Rosie ever obtain any form of education past high school. And even if she does graduate from high school, there is only a 14% chance that she will graduate from college. Daisy, on the other hand, is more likely than not to go to college. Now, supposing that Rosie somehow overcomes all the odds stacked against her and manages to develop educational skills that are on par with Daisy's, she still faces obstacles to being able to attend a really good college and to leverage her educational skills that Daisy will not face. For starters, even if Rosie and Daisy are roughly equal in intellectual and educational talent, Daisy's parents will be able to pay for her to be able to take expensive SAT prep courses that'll inflate her performance on the test so as to create the false appearance that she is more academically ready than Rosie is. Now, depending on their race, there are versions of this thought experiment where schools will set a different bar for Rosie to try to control for these false appearances. But if Daisy and Rosie have the same racial background, then most studies suggest that Daisy will stand a significantly better shot at being admitted to a good college. To illustrate just how unfairly advantaged Daisy is, let's suppose for a moment that Daisy and Rosie are both white, just to set aside the complications that affirmative action policies create when trying to predict Daisy and Rosie's chances of college admission. And let's suppose that somehow Rosie scores just as high as Daisy on the SAT and has exactly the same GPA. Now, in that case, do Rosie and Daisy have roughly the same chances of college admission to an elite institution? Well, what should be the case? Given that Daisy was likely to have been able to take SAT prep courses that inflate her scores, one would think that if anything, some priority should be given to Rosie. After all, it isn't unreasonable to think that, given the evidence, she is actually the better student given that she had to overcome so many obstacles that Daisy didn't face. So if anything, you would expect that colleges would show at least a slight preference for Rosie in the admissions process. Right, but what actually happens is exactly the opposite. If Rosie and Daisy have exactly the same SAT scores and GPAs, then, according to recent studies, elite schools are more than three times more likely to admit Daisy rather than Rosie. Why? Well... Remember all those extracurricular activities Daisy's been engaging in during her life and that Rosie has a much harder time taking advantage of? Well, having those things on your resume looks really good to college admissions committees. And why do extracurriculars make your resume look good? College representatives tell us that they're looking not just for academically prepared students, 
but well-rounded and interesting students who exhibit priorities that make them more likely to make valuable contributions to society. But given the pressures on students like Rosie to earn as much money as she can for her family, is it really plausible that these differences are remotely reliable indicators of anything other than maybe the fact that Daisy had a more privileged childhood than Rosie? So Rosie is less likely to be admitted to an elite school, even if she has the same educational profile as Daisy. And all that assumes that Rosie is even going to apply to the same schools as Daisy in the first place. Time and again, researchers who have looked at the college gap between students like Daisy and Rosie have found that students like Daisy are much more likely to apply to higher quality schools than students like Rosie. The reasons for the application gap are many, but one of the root causes is that Daisy has access to information from high quality college counselors and consultants that Rosie is likely not to have. And so, even if Rosie were to attain the same level of academic preparedness, she still faces substantially worse educational prospects. And of course, we all know that not all colleges are equal in terms of providing a path out of poverty. Someone graduating from a prestigious institution has vastly different career prospects from someone graduating from a local community college, an online university like the University of Phoenix, or any university that isn't recognized outside of its nearby geographic regions. And the fact is, the elite private institutions in the United States are comprised mostly of kids who come from well-off families like Daisy's, and hardly any students who come from backgrounds like Rosie's. In fact, around 74% of students come from families whose income put them in the top 25% of income brackets, and just 3% of students come from families in the bottom quartile. And let's not kid ourselves. We all know what this means for Rosie's future. Given what we just said, there's nearly a one in three chance that Rosie will be forced into jobs that are open to high school graduates and dropouts, and over an eight in ten chance that she'll be locked out of all jobs that require a college degree. But now, let's continue down this thought experiment of imagining that Rosie overcomes these long odds, stacked upon long odds, and graduates from the same college as Daisy. Once they've reached this stage in life, their career prospects must be close to equalized, right? Of course not. The labor market has a strong preference not just for people who have college educations, but also people with applicable real-world experience. And how do you get that? Well, most college graduates get real-world experience through internships. The more prestigious, the better. And this presents some obvious problems for Rosie. For starters, who the fuck can afford to work for free for a year, gaining the experience needed to join a new profession? Certainly not Rosie, since her parents have no money to lend her, and the majority of the most valuable internships require one to move to extremely high-cost living areas. And even if Rosie could somehow cobble together the resources needed to survive a year in a high-cost area without pay, would Rosie really stand the same chance as Daisy to secure an internship? Again, the question is patently absurd. Internships, like most other professional opportunities, are typically secured through personal networks. And Daisy's family is vastly more likely to have connections to the organizations that are likely to be able to offer internships. So once again, Rosie is at a considerable disadvantage, even if she makes it to adulthood with the same educational achievements as Daisy. So examining Rosie and Daisy's prospects on that first day of kindergarten, we can say that Rosie is almost certainly going to have a less successful career than Daisy. Given Rosie's gender, this means that there's a pretty good chance that Rosie's going to be forced to spend her life doing so-called pink-collar jobs, working in retail as a food server, working in some sort of service role. And to be clear, we are not denigrating that sort of work. Such work is necessary, and people who do that work are worthy of respect and a livable wage. But that is not how our society works. 
chances are that Rosie will not have a career that engenders respect nor provides a living wage. And in some ways here, what we're saying about Rosie's prospects are actually understating just how bad Rosie's life will likely be. Given that Rosie has a high probability of ending up in poverty, she has a much higher chance of being incarcerated, of being the victim of sexual harassment or violence, of suffering from obesity and the related health problems, and so on. In short, there's a high probability that Rosie's life will go worse on virtually any reasonable measure of well-being. And, alas, given that there's a high chance that Rosie will end up in poverty herself, if she ends up having children, there's also a much higher probability than Daisy that she will end up a single mother who is forced to watch her own children be subjected to the same cycle of poverty that she was. So now we finally get to the end of our thought experiment, and the question just is, do Rosie and Daisy have the same opportunities to succeed? Can we say that there's anything like a quality of opportunity between kids like Rosie and kids like Daisy? It's hard to see how anyone could be aware of their respective circumstances and say that, yes, they both have an equal shot. At every stage in life, kids like Rosie have to overcome significant obstacles that their more well-to-do peers do not have to face. Meanwhile, kids from wealthy families get advantages at every step that let them develop their talents and pad their resumes to give them an enormous competitive advantage over their less wealthy peers. And this leads to a really important point Richard Reeves highlights in his book, Dream Hoarders. At each step, because of their successes in the previous stage, due mainly to those unearned advantages, we grant the children of the privileged even more opportunities to develop more skills than we do their poor counterparts. So that, in effect, at each stage, we punish the disadvantaged for having been disadvantaged during the previous rounds of the competition to develop the markers of merit. And of course, the important difference between Rosie and Daisy just has to do with the family they happen to be born into. And while people often seem to love to blame the poor for the conditions they find themselves in, there's just no way to blame kids who are unable to compete with their peers because of the incredibly difficult circumstances they're forced to deal with. The upshot here is that it's not even remotely true that the extreme economic inequality in the United States is the result of some kind of fair competition, and that therefore the inequality is justified. Nothing resembling equality of opportunity exists in the United States, and that should not be news to anybody. Now, in our example, we focused on how differences in family wealth help to determine what kinds of opportunities will be available to kids. But that, of course, is not the only factor that determines one's access to opportunity. Things like race, gender, and geographical location are obviously hugely important as well, and they interact in complex ways. But we focus on the wealth gap here for two reasons. First, it is hugely important in determining what kinds of educational and economic opportunities you will have in life. And second, what the example illustrates is another major moral problem with extreme inequality. It's not just that income and wealth inequality are the result of differences in access to opportunity. But the reverse is also true. Inequality of opportunity itself is partly the result of income and wealth inequality. Each perpetuates the other in a vicious cycle. Right. In our society, massively uneven distributions of income and wealth lead to massively uneven distributions in opportunity. And those massively uneven distributions in opportunity ensure that the inequalities in income and wealth only get larger. So not only is there no equality of opportunity, 
It's a no American dream, but massive income and wealth inequality are partly what makes the American dream an impossibility for so many. And this is something that conservative politicians like, for example, Paul Ryan, often seem to miss. They emphasize that there should be something resembling equality of opportunity in the United States and that the government does have an obligation to try to ensure this. But they also argue that the government has no business trying to secure equality of outcomes. And so the government should not focus on programs which are meant to alleviate poverty. By upward mobility, by equal opportunity, or are we going to abandon that? Are we going to get on this other path, the one we're on right now, where more and more people become more dependent upon the government for their livelihoods, where they are drained of their incentive and their will to make the most of their lives, and we become a government, a society, where the government sees its job as equalizing the results of our lives, as pursuing equal outcomes versus equal opportunity. But the problem is that economic inequality and inequality of opportunity are not separable. One simply cannot address the problem of opportunity without also addressing the problem of poverty. A lack of wealth in our society is one of the biggest causes of lack of opportunity. No amount of tinkering with the educational system without addressing the underlying problems of poverty will go very far in leveling out access to opportunity. Okay, so let's get back to Rosie and Daisy for a second and consider an objection someone might raise to the argument we've made. Some might say that kids like Rosie fall behind because of bad parenting. That is, the poor are bad parents, and that's why there's a huge achievement gap between low and high socioeconomic status kids. So the gap isn't a problem because it's still poor people's fault it exists. This kind of explanation of poverty should sound familiar. It's an offshoot of a view that many conservative politicians in the U.S. have put forward since at least 1965, when Daniel Patrick Monaghan first tried to explain black poverty and the wealth gap between blacks and whites in the U.S. in terms of the breakdown of families caused by a breakdown in black culture. These kinds of explanations are often used to shift the responsibility of poverty onto the poor and away from the conditions that led to the poverty in the first place. There are a couple of things to say in response here. First, and obviously, it's much harder to be an ideal parent if you're just struggling to get by. For many such parents, there's a good chance they'll have to work long hours at multiple jobs, leaving less time to spend reading with their children, getting involved in their school life, and directing them into valuable extracurricular activities. And of course, people sometimes like to assume that people are poor because they're lazy and unwilling to work. But the fact is that, first, work can be difficult to find depending on where you live and what your skills are, and second, just having work doesn't mean you aren't impoverished. In fact, and here's a disturbing fact, as of 2002, something like 45% of homeless people work. Then there are also the problems that we raised earlier. Getting kids involved in clubs, sports, getting them lessons of various sorts, all those things cost money. So if you're a parent that can barely support yourself and your child, all these extra things that enrich the intellectual life of your child will just be beyond your financial reach. Plus, the parents who are likely to have less education themselves, will also have a harder time navigating the system and helping their child gain important services at crucial points. They will be more likely to suffer from things like depression, live in bad neighborhoods, and generally deal with a much greater degree of stress. We could go on here, but we've already made this case in earlier sections. But the other general point is that even for the poor kids who do have genuinely bad parents, 
the parents in that case might shoulder some blame. But it doesn't follow that the kids have the same opportunities as everyone else. And that's what our point is here. There's nothing like equality of opportunity in the United States. Right. And that means two things. First, to the extent that the American dream depends on the idea of there being equal opportunity, there is no American dream. It does not exist. And second, one can't defend our incredibly unequal distribution of income and wealth by claiming that it just reflects who works hard and who doesn't. That line of thinking assumes that there's something like a fair competition for resources, and that those with lots of resources, therefore, deserve it. As we've detailed, just in the case of education, on balance, those who are born into wealthy families have tremendous advantages over those who are born into poor families. To think that there's something like a fair competition, and those who work hard will succeed, is just complete fantasy. And furthermore, extreme income and wealth inequality is itself a huge barrier to equality of opportunity. And so for anyone who thinks that some semblance of equal opportunity is a necessary part of a just society, well, they ought to recognize that the massive economic inequality we see in the U.S. is itself a major barrier to justice. But just when we think we've buried the American dream for good, it shoots its ugly hand up out of the earth for one last gasp, and sitting up in its grave it says, Yeah, but what about Oprah? Man, Oprah. She really is casting a huge shadow over this discussion. But right? This is what one often hears. What about Ben Carson? What about Larry Ellison? Hell, what about Barack Obama? Don't these people show that anyone can make it? Sure, some people might have more obstacles to overcome than others, but those obstacles can be overcome. Therefore, anyone can make it. QED, the American dream lives on. I think this is one of those pet peeve points for both of us. Somehow people switch to thinking that what matters is that there is the possibility, in the weakest possible sense, to make it no matter who you are. In other words, it's not literally impossible for these people to not only succeed, but to make it into the upper income brackets. Therefore, the American dream is real, and so our distribution of wealth and income must be basically just. Right. In fact, let's slow down here to show how broken this piece of reasoning is, because holy crap, is it broken. Okay, so first of all, the American dream is based on the idea that anyone who works hard and plays by the rules can lead a decent life, where decent here means living a middle-class life, or at least getting out of poverty. Now, can we infer from the fact that some people make it out of poverty, and that some even become wealthy, that it is even a good bet that someone who starts off poor, but works hard, and plays by the rules, will secure for themselves a middle-class life? Obviously not. You wouldn't infer from the fact that some people win the lottery, that playing the lottery is a good bet for anyone. Now, you might think that the lottery is a bad analogy because it just depends on luck, and people who go from rags to riches obviously work really hard for what they get. And that's true, but the rags-to-riches stories typically involve people who are exceptionally talented, way more talented than the typical person, no matter their socioeconomic status, and who also experience a string of lucky breaks along the way that easily could have failed to manifest. So, just as an aside, there's this one film that I both love and at the same time absolutely hate. And that's Will Smith's The Pursuit of Happiness. And I hate that movie for precisely this reason. 
On the one hand, the movie portrays the life of Chris Gardner, this exceptional guy who went from being homeless to being a titan of Wall Street. And he did it by making unbelievable sacrifices and lifting himself up by his bootstraps. And the guy is a remarkably inspiring human being. For example, he goes to work and he has to like go and pick up his son after work. So he's going to work fewer hours than his coworkers, but he needs to outperform them in order to convert his unpaid internship into a job. So what does he do? He does things like he never drinks at work, so that he never has to go to the bathroom so that he can actually take more calls and less time than everybody else. Like the guy has incredible grit. But at the same time, at the very beginning of the movie, we learn that he's a fucking genius, right? That he's solved problems that mathematicians couldn't solve. Namely, he solved Rubik's Cubes without any guidance on his own in a lightning fast manner, right? So we learn he's a fucking genius and he also works really hard and is able to make his way out of poverty. And so on the one hand, Chris Gardner's amazing and he's an incredibly inspiring figure. But on the other hand, he's not really a model for the rest of us because he's a fucking genius. So uh, how many stars would you give it? Uh, well, definitely four. It's, it's really good. Okay, so back to the point at hand here. The lesson of these incredible rags-to-riches stories is that if you are insanely talented, and if you are incredibly hardworking, and if you are lucky in any number of ways, then you can make it too. Meanwhile, and here's the really important point here, if you're from a really well-to-do family, being mediocre is more than enough to ensure that you will live very comfortably. The economist Joseph Stiglitz makes basically the same point in the following clip. Another way of looking at it, you know, there, you can cut this in a number of different ways. Uh, the, uh, somebody from the, uh, the top, even if he doesn't do well, is going to remain at the top. So the life chances, chances of somebody from the top who doesn't do very well in school are better than somebody from the bottom who does well in school. So that really says, you know, that your parents make a great deal of difference to your economic fortunes. We're not the land of opportunity that we would like to be. There was one... And it's not relevant that some overcome the odds and make it. What's relevant is just that some people have a very small, though admittedly non-zero chance of making it, while other people are more or less guaranteed to make it strictly because of their family's wealth. In a way, the rags-to-riches stories themselves perfectly illustrate the injustice that we're pointing out. Implicit in the idea of the rags-to-riches stories is the idea that these cases are exceptional, both because they're rare and because the individual in question often goes to extraordinary lengths to succeed. On the other hand, people who are born rich really have to fuck up badly to end up poor. There's almost no better illustration of the differences in opportunity between the rich and the poor than to consider those two facts. Now, to be fair, it's true that people who are poor in the United States have more opportunity here than in some other places in the world, though certainly not every place, but it obviously doesn't follow that therefore there is a quality of opportunity, or even that there's a reasonable amount of opportunity for the poor. Right. To point to cases of extreme injustice and to say that we're at least doing better than that is to have some really, really low expectations. And in general, most people think that at least some semblance of equality of opportunity is what is required to say that our institutions are basically just.
And so the myth of the American dream sank reluctantly back into its grave. It'll be back. It always comes back. Well, before it does, let's just quickly recap the ground we've covered in this episode. We started by considering a response that people often make when confronted with the stark inequalities that exist in the United States. The response says, look, the inequalities aren't problematic because they merely reflect differences in what people deserve. The American dream is based on the idea that people are able to make a decent living if they deserve it. And the American dream is alive and well, so if people don't make it, that's their own fault, and they don't deserve to. But this response assumes that everyone has a fair shot at success, that there's at least some semblance of equality of opportunity in the United States. And as we argued, even when you just take a brief look at educational outcomes and how they translate to economic success, it's abundantly obvious that there's nothing like equality of opportunity in the United States. Not only do kids from poor families have to scrape and claw to make their way up the socioeconomic ladder, the wealthy have safety harnesses to ensure they never fall too far. In short, the American dream is a myth. It's simply not true that if you work hard and play by the rules, you can make it, no matter who you are. And it's definitely not true that everyone has an equal shot at success. And not only is it a myth, but it's a dangerous one. Since belief in the American dream often stands in the way of recognizing the moral failings of our institutions. It's nearly impossible to have a real discussion about the problems and solutions to extreme inequality when one has an essentially religious belief that things are basically fair. Right, and the other important point here is that since the American dream is merely a myth, then the arguments that we made in the first episode on inequality still stand. The extremely unequal distribution of resources in the United States is morally problematic and reflects serious failings of our basic institutions. And in fact, we've made another major argument to the effect that extreme income and wealth inequality is morally problematic. Namely, that it is extremely effective in reinforcing differences in access to opportunity, which, we all agree, is a bad thing, and which leads to further economic inequality in a vicious circle. In the next episode, we'll take a closer look at one of the ideas that supports belief in the American dream, the idea that people get what they deserve, and in general, that the distribution of resources should be determined on the basis of what people deserve. We'll argue, first, that even if you ignore differences in access to opportunity, the distribution of resources in the U.S. does not at all reflect the distribution of merit. In other words, it's just not the case that people get what they deserve, not even close. But we'll also argue that the deeper normative ideal that lurks beneath the American dream is false. In other words, we shouldn't even desire a society in which the distribution of resources is determined strictly on the basis of merit. But that's next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening.